you tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph. the Telegraph Podcasts Welcome to Ukraine the Latest from The Telegraph. I'm David Knowles. Today, we bring you updates from across Ukraine and the world, and we interview Dimko Slutenko, the 24-year-old founder of Ukrainian charity Zegas Poor that supplies the military with equipment for the front lines. We talk about Dimko's experiences in the past year, the challenges he's faced, and the emotional toll of his work, where many of the soldiers he's helping are friends. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 28th of February, one year and four days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and our guest, Dimko Slutenko. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So Russia has said that it has shot down a couple of Ukrainian drones that they say was targeting civilian infrastructure in southern Russia. It is terrible. It's laughable that they highlight that when that's what their tactics have been for the last few well, about 12 months, really. But the Russian MOD said the Kyiv regime attempted to use unmanned aerial vehicles to attack civilian infrastructure. And they said in the Krasnodar region, that is the the oblast directly east of Crimea, so where the, the other end of the Kirsch Bridge connects, and the Adygea Republic, which is, again, just next to Krasnodar. Russian MOD saying the UAVs were neutralised by electronic warfare units. That would imply that they've interfered with the, the, the controlling signal and the, and the drones either crash or go back to their their point of origin i mean that that is one way you can counter these drones if you can interfere with the signal you can send them back home because what these these things are designed to a lot of them are designed to to go back to their point of origin if they if they lose a control signal now 
if you can hack it and get those drones to go back home, that is a very nice and easy way of finding out where, where they were launched from. So we don't know what's happened here. They've said they were shot down and said they were neutralised by electronic warfare. I mean, electronic warfare doesn't shoot stuff down. It can it can interfere with the signal so they can drop out of the sky, but it's not like some sort of laser or beam that, that whacks them. So we don't quite know what's happened there, but Russia said that, that they've shot down two Ukrainian drones. Bakhmut. So yesterday we talked about Colonel General Alexander Sierski, the Ukrainian commander of uh, ground forces or the, the commander of Ukrainian ground forces. He visited Bakhmut yesterday. We took that as a sign that, that, that the area was still not entirely cir- encircled. There's two main roads out of there, one sort of north, northwest and one southwest ish. We think those roads are still open. We think the cross country movement is becoming worse we think the raspatitsa the the areas you're just going into and out of winter when the when the thick hard mud of winter or the 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 baked soil of summer transitions and the whole place just becomes a a big muddy cloying thick mess which is very very difficult to move across anything other than paved surfaces that is starting we think so those roads are going to become even more critical but we think bakhmut is still not entirely encircled wagner group has been bashing themselves against it for months now at extreme cost for a you know, very, very strategically irrelevant piece of ground. But they are still going at it. Alexander Sersky visited yesterday. He said that, quote, despite significant losses, the enemy threw in the most prepared assault units of Wagner, who are trying to break through the defences of our troops and surround the city. And he described the situation there as extremely tense, which is, I think, a fair, a fair summation of, of what we understand. And just two more things. So Vadim Skibitsky, who's Ukraine's deputy military intelligence chief, remember I, I interviewed him when we went out to Ukraine last year. He stepped up briefly as the, the head of military intelligence. Yeah, nice, nice chap, knows his stuff. Uh, he, he's been talking about the much-anticipated Ukrainian spring counteroffensive and saying it would aim to drive a wedge between Crimea and the Russian mainland. Now, we've spoken about this before. Many people have. I mean, this is not this is not sort of strategic genius coming out here. Many people have said it would be very beneficial for Ukraine if they were to drive down kind of from Zaporizhia area, head down southeast to Melitopol and that kind of way to hit the coast. You then they would then split if they were able to hold that. They would split Russian forces in two. So you'd have Crimea and the area immediately to the north of Crimea. And then the Donbass, but the much the, the very important land corridor that, that we know Putin wants and, and may arguably have been the whole point of this in the first place, that land corridor would be severed. So that that is not is not new, that thought. It is interesting that you get someone who's very very, very senior, the deputy head of Ukraine's military intelligence saying, Yeah, this is what we're gonna do, which makes you think that it's a bluff or a, a double bluff or a super triple special three way bluff. So who knows? But um that he's talking about it is is interesting. And then just finally, yesterday we talked about this this attack in Belarus. So just Makolitsky Air Base, which is about 5k south of Minsk, outside the capital, just to the south of the capital, home to a number of um, Russian aircraft, the mainstay, NATO codename Mainstay Aircraft. These are airborne warning and control. They're basically big air traffic control systems. They're plug and play, bring your own air traffic control so you know where all your stuff is. And you can then, uh, when you see other blips that are obviously enemy aircraft, you can direct fighters onto them and what have you. Um, that's what these things do. AWACS, we, we call them in, in sort of in the West, airborne warning and control system. So Russia, uh, one of these aircraft were, was damaged yesterday by 
Russia, uh, Belarusian partisans belonging to Bipol, these, these, this group of former security officials who, who, are, who oppose Lukashenko. MOD, UK MOD in their Defence Intelligence Update today, giving all the information that we gave to you yesterday, 24 hours in advance. Um, however, the only information they give that we didn't have yesterday was that they've put a figure on it. We said there were 15 aircraft, nine older variants, six new variants, and the aircraft that was damaged is one of the older variants. That's what we said yesterday. UK MOD today is saying that the loss of this aircraft leaves six operational. So there will be others, but they'll be in various states of deep deep maintenance or what have you. But UK MOD is saying that only leaves six of these aircraft, which are critical. If you want to have a if you want to have an air campaign, you need an air traffic control. So you need to bring your own military AWACS. And if you want to have a ground campaign, you should have an air campaign so that you can have uh, you know, local air superiority. So you have certain impunity on the ground to go and do what, what you want. So you do need these things. And if there's only six left, that is very significant for Russia. Now, as we've said for months now, the Russian Air Force haven't really turned up to this. They've got a very, very considered and deep network of surface-to-air missiles on the ground, but the Air Force hasn't really done an awful lot, and they very rarely go forward of their own uh, of their own troops. So there's not really been much from the air from Russia, but that could change. And even having said that, they still need these airborne warning and control systems to have any kind of effect in the air. So it is significant that there's only six of these left. If they were not there, it, it would be it would it would heavily stymie Russia's air effort. And as I say, that is necessary for anything. If you if you're going to be serious about you know doing war, then you need your air and your ground all working together. And without these airborne warning and control systems. That's even harder for Russia to do that bit and would therefore make it even harder to have any effect on the ground whatsoever. I'm going to have to pause there because I need to dash off somewhere that we can talk about tomorrow. Thanks very much, Tom, and thanks for giving us some more information on the attack in Belarus. I think that really puts it into perspective and helps us understand uh, the impact of that on the battlefield. So thank you very much for that, Dom. Francis, I'll come to you next and then to our guest, Dimko. But Francis, first, what are the latest political and diplomatic updates that you're seeing? Well, thanks, David. I want to actually start with the remarks by Ukraine's deputy military intelligence chief, the one that Don was just speaking about, because also in that interview, he underlined the importance that Ukraine gives to retaking Crimea. Now, of course, this is a subject that we've talked about on the podcast many, many times in the past. There are those in the West who believe that Crimea is the sticking point, that if it may be militarily impossible for Ukraine to take it, that it may be Putin's red line for nuclear escalation, that it's territory to be negotiated, in essence, in order to secure a long term peace. Now, that view is diametrically opposed to the perspective of the Ukrainian government, which firmly believes that a Ukraine is part of its territory and rightly so by international law, that is absolutely the case, but also that they see if Russia is unable to maintain Crimea in the end of this war, that it will serve as a means for them to launch a future invasion or to destabilise Ukrainian domestic politics by having a foothold there. But also, I think they see Ukraine's economic future, its success in the future and the long term, is reliant on this idea of territorial integrity, that Crimea is part of that, because it will stabilise southern Ukraine, 
And also it will ensure that people know the war is definitively over, which will encourage investment. And more importantly, it will make sure that Ukrainian civilians who have left come back because they don't think that there is a chance of further violence on the border. So for all of these reasons, Crimea remains absolutely integral to the Ukrainian government's objectives for this war. And in that light, I just wanted to reflect on some interesting comments by Ben Hodges, the former commanding general of the United States Army Europe, somebody that we've talked about at length on the podcast. He's written for us in the past. And he firmly believes that it is not only possible for Putin's forces to be destroyed in Crimea, but he believes it's possible for that to take place without actually there being a major essentially invasion of of Crimea by Ukrainian forces, that actually, in his view, it is entirely plausible for Ukraine to strike key Russian targets in the peninsula with long-range weapons that have now been given to them by America and to strike these critical targets that will eventually stop Russian forces being able to remain posted there. He believes that if the bridges are destroyed, other key targets, and I should say that he's actually mapped out some of these on Twitter and has spoken about them in numerous interviews, including in the New Statesman and others, uh, that if these are taken out, it will actually become impossible for Russia to be able to remain in Crimea, he argues, in the long term, and that that should be the military priority of the Ukrainians in the coming year, that if they are able to essentially knock out Putin's forces in Crimea, that this could precipitate the collapse generally of the Russian army all across the country, but also may lead to an implosion of the political reality for Putin at home. So an interesting argument, and it would solve, of course, some of these problems, which is that it would find a solution to how Ukraine keeps Crimea, but without having to actually go through a prolonged military campaign, which could derail Western support and that would stop and that would cause Putin to potentially ramp up this nuclear rhetoric, which is, of course, such a a concern for many countries for right or wrong. So some interesting analysis, I thought, on that, and I would point listeners to that. But in terms of the diplomatic updates, I'll try and whiz through these. Uh, I think the most important ones today are preparing for uh, President Alexander Lukashenko's visit to Beijing. He's going there for three days. And there's been a lot of warm words that have been exchanged uh, prior to this from both countries. China have hailed it. It's all-weather and comprehensive strategic partnership with Belarus. One of its senior diplomats has said, since the establishment of diplomatic relations 31 years ago, the political mutual trust between China and Belarus has been continuously strengthened. China looks forward to working with Belarus to take this visit as an opportunity to promote all-round cooperation between the two countries for further development. This matters, of course, because it comes off the back of uh, increasing concern from the United States and other Western allies that China may well be preparing to provide weapons support for Russia. And of course, Belarus are one of Russia's key allies in this war. And it does seem with all of the remarks in recent days, the 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 fact that this meeting is going ahead so publicly and these remarks have been published, it does suggest that those two blocks that I spoke about yesterday uh, between, say, autocracies and democracies are beginning to harden. The allies are beginning to become uh, much more concerned about the direction of travel in the long term, which as we've argued, was inevitable uh, as long as it was remained obvious that Russia was not going to be completely cut off economically and politically. And in this vein, uh, 
the US has continued to highlight their anxieties today with regard to China. They've said that China is very clearly taking Russia's side in the Ukraine war by providing diplomatic, political and economic support. That's come from the US Department of State spokesman Ned Price. He's told a news briefing, there are countries around the world that if they sought to bring the war to an end would have a significant amount of leverage with the Russian Federation with other key countries. China certainly falls within that category, but to date at least, despite the PRC's protest to the contrary, we've seen them very clearly take a side in this war. Now, China have, have fought back, as it were. The Chinese foreign ministry spokesman has said the US has no right to point fingers at China-Russia relations. We will by no means accept the US pressure and coercion. So, quite a lot of concern, I think it's fair to say, is being articulated at the moment between Beijing and Washington for the respective stances held by both. Um, But just one other comment on that. Ukraine has said that they do not yet see evidence that China are going to be furnishing Russia Russia with arms. They've been telling uh, US media that they see no signs of such matters even being discussed. And I think the significance of this potentially is that Ukraine don't want to completely sever, I'm sure, the diplomatic channels that are open with China at the moment. So they want to be seen as, as as being perhaps a little bit more soft on China than other uh, of their partners for the simple fact that we don't know the important conversations that are taking place between both sides at the moment. So a lot is happening in the diplomatic space, David, and I'll come to a few others later on because I'm aware that we should get to our guest. Well, thank you, Francis. And before that, Dom. Francis, as you said, we'll come back to you later on for some final updates. But right now, let's turn to our guest, Dimko Zlutenko. Dimko, thank you so much for joining us. Just to start us off, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about your life pre-24th of February 2022? Hello, everyone. I was just a normal, ordinary Ukrainian guy doing IT. I've been doing a lot of digital nomad things, so traveling around the world, uh, seeing things, living in different countries. And um, I was not too worried about the war. At the same time, I always knew it was, it was sour in there. And um, when it all was starting, when we first started hearing enormous amount of news about Russian military gathering about around the border, and um, all of my employers, as I was a freelancer at that time, all of my employers, uh, they urged me to leave the country and asked me if they could do anything for me. Uh, uh, to name some of the offers, just to move to New Zealand, move to Australia, move to any other country in Europe, so they would cover all the costs, but something clicked and uh, I had this kind of a talk and discussion with my girlfriend, whether are we the ones who will move out of the country if anything starts. And we came to the conclusion that we are actually healthy, smart, economically active. And if we would be the people who would move out, no one would actually stay here. And that's how we decided that no matter what, we'll stay here in Ukraine and do our best to help Ukraine win this unfair war against Russia, which we, uh, unfortunately, uh, we have seen the beginning of it as teenagers. So in 2014, when Russia first uh, occupied Crimea, uh, installed their puppet government in uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, 
and try to seize other cities. We were just like 14, 15 kind of uh, age. And uh, right before the invasion on 24th of February, we went on a volunteer project uh, to the front lines. So we basically cruised uh, all the front line uh, from, uh, sorry, from Stanitsa Luhanska uh, through all of the Donetsk, Luhansk Oblast and uh, uh, finishing in Mariupol. So uh, after talking to all of these soldiers, after seeing what conditions do they live and uh, understanding that they have real casualties almost uh, weekly, monthly at that time, even though it was ceasefire, I was just impressed how ignorant to some extent I was and that I think this inspired me and my girlfriends to be more of a involved into this warfare and use all of our skills, creativity and previous experience to create something good for Ukraine. And it turned out in a way that I have been lucky to create a cherry fund gathering almost $1 million in donations and spending that as best as it was it was possible at that time. So I think this is the brief of it. Normal IT people, youngsters, smart, uh, and we never thought of doing anything like this in our lives, but here I am. Well, thank you very much, Dimko, for taking us through the lead up to February 2022. Could you talk a little bit about the impact of the full-scale invasion on you, your, your friends and your family, and maybe then go into talking about Ziga's poor and, and how you started that? I would love to everyone to understand the enormous scale of the invasion. It's not a local conflict. We are talking millions of people involved in the active warfare on both sides. And uh, this brings us to enormous amounts of destruction, enormous amounts of economy wasted. That's very important. Being Ukrainians, I can tell you the how big is the impact generally on every Ukrainian that each and every Ukrainian family has something to do with the war. Either they have their house destroyed or someone from the family went to fight or even most of the family went to fight like of, a, uh, like of some of my friends and they only have like, I don't know, like one or two people at home while five of them are sour in different parts of the front lines. And maybe someone has people who volunteer, like myself, to supply Ukrainian military. Or someone goes to a medical battalion to heal the soldiers that are injured. And this is exactly the scale. There is no family untouched in Ukraine by this scale of war. I think with my personal perspective to me this war is very personal because initially the whole thing of uh, Zygaspa, the cherry fund, it all started as just me spending my own money to equip my friends and uh, eventually I started posting this on Twitter because I, I always wanted to document what is happening because this is a very epic time and uh, eventually it started getting a lot of attention and media traction because people thought, yeah, 
if this guy is putting his own money into it, then perhaps it's legit. They were starting to ask, hey, how, how can I chip in into this initiative? How can I help your friends? This was exactly the beginning. And this is a very personal connection that I have. Uh, immediately on 24th, I started asking all of my friends, hey, are you fine? Where, how, how bad is this? And uh, they were saying different things, obviously, but most of them needed the equipment to be more efficient in what they do. Some of those friends uh, are injured. I have, and in the very first months, it was just a meat grinder in some sense. And it was very emotional and traumatic for people like me to go to funerals of my friends like weekly or bi-weekly one of the moments of a emotional breakdown that i had when i was just sitting in my car and and waiting for <clears throat> after the, i don't know how it's called in english but why do you say goodbye to a person who has passed away and we were just sitting in the car and near the crematorium or crematory i don't know and waiting for them to burn the body so we could take the ashes to his hometown and then have another session of this uh, goodbye to to that person in his city with his family who wasn't able to come to Kiev. So that was a very mental thing and I think it is very similar for many Ukrainians that something just changed and I think emotionally I became empty at some point so I had a friend of mine who was injured and he was transported to the hospital in Dnipro he is in a very complicated condition now but he, he is still alive he has uh, shrapnel all over his uh, stomach which makes it more complicated and uh, still we are better sitting somewhere here in Lviv or in other cities it is just too damaging for us to go and visit him. <laughs> so I think this is uh, the the impact first that it did. It's a very emotional impact and obviously it is war. And this is a real war of enormous scale. Uh, when people die, people get killed, people step on the mine or on booby traps. And this is not cool. Pretty much not cool. From my family, I have, I think, from total of uh, 20 people of my family who I know, nearly five of them are fighting now or anyhow involved in the active warfare. So I think uh, this is pretty uh, self-explanatory. <laughs> well, thank you, Dimko, for sharing all of that. We appreciate how, how difficult and emotional it must be. When you think of your work support, sourcing supplies for, for your friends in the armed forces, can we ask what, what sort of supplies are you looking at and what challenges do you, do you face uh, logistically, you know, getting them to the front line, finding the right kit? Um, could you talk us through that? So as I said, initially, it was just a personal initiative for me helping my friends with uh, the equipment they need because the government wasn't really ready. So I decided that I'll just uh, step in and do the best investment in my life. I'll invest my savings into saving my friends' likes. What people were asking for were quite of a different things, but I have decided <laughs> I'll help 
with what I can. Some of the things were too expensive. Some of the things were that I didn't have any expertise in. But in the end, I've decided that uh, at this very moment, I'll focus on supplying high-tech equipment to the lines because this is at least something that I could do very efficiently because I am in the topic. I'm, I know perfectly about all of the details of Starlings, of radios, of portable power stations. And uh, I think finding that focus was very critical because I'm not wasting my energy on everything at once. <clears throat> Even though initially... In the very beginning, it was very chaotic. So people were asking for basic things like uh, body armor. So I also did a bit of uh, that. And unfortunately, I also have expertise in this. <laughs> mm. But yeah, generally, the demand or the askings uh, have changed to more focused things that are not so much about the personal protection equipment, uh, because that has uh, started to be supplied by Ukrainian army. And actually, Ukrainian army did a great campaign of uh, getting all of the clothing uh, intact, etc. So body armor, helmets. So there is no big issue with this. But things like, especially things that I would call them consumables, such as tablets, starlings, drones, everything like this gets broken eventually or gets destroyed by shelling. And so this is something that is always a big demand. And the next one was regarding the challenges, right? Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I think so. I, I would love to give some more of a context uh, to how it started and what, what we're looking at now. Initially, it was just me. A person with 500 followers on Twitter from different parts of my life just telling the story of how I was helping my friends and well, what my day was like. So I, I basically tweeted <clears throat> about how having a, a walk with my dog uh, helps my mental health or how we were hiding in the bog shelter or how we went for a beer, etc. And uh, it was very easy at that time, but... As it started growing and as I took this responsibility, I took this challenge of contributing or committed one year of my life solely to uh, help in Ukraine win. So this is what I did for the whole year. And uh, as it was growing, I've started facing so many of the challenges, how to optimize the logistics, how to optimize the supply, how to optimize the cooperation with the, the unit etc etc at the moment we are looking at uh, almost uh, a one million dollar charity operating for i think half a year officially i would say that this breaks whole much of uh, challenges like another one is logistics because there is always something to improve there is a lot of paperwork that is involved in this to operate legally because I'm a Ukrainian resident. So I would obviously want to have everything as legal as possible in accordance to Ukrainian uh, laws uh, regarding charity. And uh, obviously I'm facing the challenges of uh, adding more people to the cause. Very obvious CEO kind of uh, challenges of uh, 
when you're starting running this as a startup and at some point you need to hire more people you need to delegate obviously not to mention the emotional challenge because what i'm trying to do with the, the charity fund is uh, i'm trying to tell stories and i'm on the website i'm telling the stories of our fighters who we support and this something that gives it a really a lot of a personal touch and uh, for me it's really sad when something happens to those people because usually um, one of the first ones to learn and yeah this is this is very challenging mentally i think because uh, all of these people are our friends and it sucks pretty much to lose friends like this due to the Russian invasion who who just want to kill all of us and they wouldn't differentiate if I'm a, a good Ukrainian or Russian speaking Ukrainian or uh, someone else, you know. With our work, we are making the war end faster because the only way that we are seen to finish uh, the Russian invasion is to anyhow make the biggest holes in their bodies in a way that they are so tired and exhausted so they wouldn't uh, be able to make any offenses. Dimka, can I ask just quickly, I mean, you touched on some of the initial asks from your friends and contacts in the military at the beginning of the full-scale invasion. Have you seen what they're asking for in terms of equipment change uh, over the year? Uh, and if so, how so? So, as I mentioned, uh, initially they were asking literally everything, starting from clothes and uniform or body armor. Uh, but uh, I think it changed nearly four months in, five months in, when Ukrainian army uh, and Ministry of Defense started massively supplying those. So, at the moment, there is no shortage of that. Uh, personal equipment and obviously the requests have changed to something that would give you more of a tactical advantage over enemy forces in the fight so things like drones would allow you to save uh, a group of raccoon guys and instead of losing three of your raccoon guys you would lose a drone and but this still would give you the same amount of information so I'm definitely seeing that uh, the shift have changed uh, towards uh, things like uh, drones, radios, Starlink, as uh, communication is, is, is key. And communication is a very valid tactical advantage in this kind of warfare that we are having at Dogbus, at least. So I think many of the units they have <coughs> initially, well, what I did with the, that tech, I was uh, kind of suggesting the ideas to the military friends that I had. Like, hey, what would happen if you would actually, you know, start flying from a drone somewhere and uh, you would have Starlink on you and uh, you would stream, literally live stream, capture the screen of your tablet that you were using for flying to stream that video, that footage somewhere else. Let's say to the commandment post. So, or to uh, artillery guys, and 
in the very first months, it was so unexpected and people didn't really knew that. And all of those ideas, I kind of played with them around a bit, suggested solutions and we implemented that. And now it's de facto a standard, you know? So that's how we decided, yeah, that makes sense to supply Starlings. That makes sense to get more of a tablets. That makes sense to have affordable power stations. So you could power that Starlink and not have any uh, gas emissions or anything like you would have from the generator. I think now more and more Ukrainians know, I would say the best practices in some sense. And they're asking for more targeted things like, let's say, radio retranslators, so they could have better range. Uh, but in the very beginning, it was so messy and so chaotic, so they would ask for very basic things. That's really interesting. Thank you, uh, Dimko. Can I, can I ask, you've gone quite close to the front lines several times this year, quite a lot this year, and spoken to soldiers who are fighting. Could you talk us through a little bit more your experiences on the front? What have you seen and experienced? And what are, what are the soldiers telling you about, about the action they're involved in? Um, so just a little disclaimer. So I'm not that brave to go into the trenches. I've, I've tried to keep at least some distance, maybe like two kilometers away from where Russian positions are. So still I'm in the range of uh, artillery. We don't do these kind of trips oftenly but when we do they are very formative and mostly we do them for talking to the fighter how they use equipment maybe we can provide some tips suggestions uh, and generally understand better what their work is all about and obviously to deliver the equipment but just to touch on this I think personally that uh, being Ukrainian, <laughs> understand the, the context more. I think that running the supplies through the post offices is much and much more optimal because uh, Ukrainian post offices literally were 10 kilometers away from Russian positions. And I'm able to send something from Lviv to, let's say, Kramatorsk or Slovensk today and it would get uh, there in a matter of two days. So, uh, anyway, uh, mostly we use post office. And when we do go to the front lines, I actually see a lot of positivity because I see that the work that we are doing here and our best efforts that we are putting in are not wasted. They are really trying as hard as they can uh, to utilize the equipment in a way that they would be able to hold the line to fight Russians as best as they can. Because I, I think this is what this kind of a community war or uh, national war is all about, is that all of the Ukrainians that are fighting or some of them that are not even fighting, they clearly understand the motivation and uh, they realized that if they wouldn't hold the enemy today in Bakhmut, then the enemy would come to Slovensk, to Kramatorsk, and then somewhere to Kharkiv, to Pavlograd, to Dnipro, to Zaporizhia. And that eventually, if you retreat all the time, the tanks would be right on your street, somewhere in your hometown in Western Ukraine. 
I think this was the take that I have heard many times and general wide. So they understand how it's working and they realize that not all of them will go through it, but this is the risk and the sacrifice that they are willing to take for their loved one. I think this is very sentimental to me, I think, because this is what exactly I would say differentiates the uh, Ukrainians from Russians in our work is that Ukrainians are just into defending their own land and we don't need to invade anyone or anything. But this is very unfair kind of war and we are struggling to fight this war. And this is very good that people uh, and uh, government and countries uh, have decided to support Ukraine. And it's not the situation that we had in 2014 when Russia just went in and annexed or occupied Crimea forever, as they say, when uh, they simply just assaulted all the government buildings and said, yes, this is Russia now. I think this time we are in a much stronger position and judging from Ukrainian history, from what we, are, we were discussing with the soldiers, and a lot of them are quite educated as I was surprised because obviously we don't really have thing called professional army that is able to withstand that scale of the invasion so most of the people fighting at the moment they're basically civilians with some prior experience either they went through uh, some training courses uh, by the military or by themselves but simply they never thought of being fighters and most of them know history pretty well and uh, as we were discussing with them it is the best time for Ukraine ever to defend ourselves from Russian invasion because this is what we had for centuries this is what we had for ages that's our best chance. At least now we have the state, the government, and uh, we have our forces and we believe in them. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you, Timko. Can I ask, uh, you've talked a little bit about the emotional tra trauma the last year has taken on you in terms of losing friends, killed and injured. How do you think 2022 going into 2023 has changed you as a person? Well, I think this is the most insane year of my life. I'm 24 now. Obviously, that is not something that we would think that a person who is 24 would have in their life. And that kind of age, uh, you would travel the world, have some fun, partying, etc. Or build a career. But what we are having now is obviously very heavy emotionally and this is a great challenge but i take this challenge with uh, with a stoic approach kind of because if i can do something about this situation that i'm very lucky and i am able to channel all of the emotions feelings anger negativity that i have in me because of the whole situation i am able to channel this and to 
uh, running the charity. And this charity is something that can help Ukraine win. And this can save uh, Ukrainian fighters. So this is, this is our contribution as an organization to the victory. I think this is what keeping me sane to conclude, I think. Yeah. And in the previous year, I was quite naive about the world. And uh, I didn't really believe as most Ukrainians that uh, we would have something like this. I didn't believe that we would have this kind of invasion of this scale that would drag up until now. But at the same time, I learned so with it that one year and uh, of I learned so much about basic things like friendship, like brotherhood, like love to your to your relatives, to your to to my girlfriend, and uh, I think these are the values that I will carry on through my life. This is a very identity building kind of moment. I would say. And obviously, I learned a lot of uh, technical skills. So <laughs> I never thought that I would be running a cherry. I never thought that I would be anyhow public in the media. I never thought that I would need to deal with all of that. But the enormous amount of motivation that I had made me go through all of those challenges and uh, perform it as best as it was possible. I think that in this year, I'm much of a stronger and better person than I was before. So I think uh, our times create strong people in some sense. What does the next year look for you, look like for you? What will you be focusing on? Obviously, charity work. So I'll do my best to supply Ukrainian military with high-tech equipment, whatever that would be at that time, either that would be Starlinks or power stations or radios or uh, anything else, I would do my best. And uh, I would also apply all of my previous knowledge, experience, skills to scale the organization, attract more of the donations, plan any partnerships, have more of a media exposure so people would be able to see what we are doing and that this is an honest effort you know i think that would be the priorities but obviously the one and only priority and the one and only reason why i am here at the moment is because i want to pray to them and this is a question of my life. This is a question of existence of Ukrainian nation. This is a question of lives of my friends. This is the only reason why this cherry fund exists. To help Ukrainian military win against a barbaric Russian invasion. So focusing on that, I think. Thank you very much, Dinko. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before before we finish and before you talk a little bit about, about your dog whose name inspired the charity? Is there anything else before that you'd like to talk about? I would perhaps love to mention that uh, it was very good of uh, you to have me here. And uh, if anyone anyhow appreciated the effort that I'm doing, I would encourage to either follow me or follow the charity fund. And uh, thanks to 
all the people who are working in uh, the thirty-five Zygospol to supply Ukrainian military because this is something that saves our lives and this is no longer just a, a local conflict between Ukraine and Russia. This is something that is worldwide. Thank you, Dimko. Maybe press you just quickly to tell us a little bit about Ziga herself. So, uh, I'll add a bit of a more of a context. So, I have a dog and uh, I'm awfully posting her on Twitter and uh, obviously I love my dog. This is uh, what we have in the name of the charity. The name of the dog is Ziga, which in Ukrainian it means a spinning top. I think that just a toy for kids that spends all the time. And uh, uh, how I came up with the, the name of the charity, it was in a way that uh, I usually, all of the things that I've said to the front lines, I put them into my garden for the picture. And my dog, Ziko, she was very enthusiastic about all of those things. So she went to, to sniff around, to steal them, uh, and to have some fun with it. And one of uh, the times that we had such... Uh, she just, her paws were wet for some reason, and she stepped on the compa shirt that I had lighted in the garden on the grass, and it left a footprint or a paw print, if you say so. And that's how I decided that would be a nice, uh, absurd name to the organization, to name it in the name of my dog, my bear, in the name of uh, her paw. And basically the logo of or the identity of a charity fund, it all comes from a real picture of her paw. Uh, it would be fun if you go check it out. And uh, this is a great dog that uh, I think she inspired us a lot and comforted us at the times of early months and moving on. What we did fun with her is at the very first day we learned the command shelter. And uh, in our house, we have a like a cellar out of basement, how do you call it? And uh, in the first day, we taught her that command if we are saying it's time to go shelter or if there is a, a air raid uh, alarm siren cell, that it's time to go downstairs to the basement. It was fun and uh, it was really great uh, just to spend time with her. And still is. Unfortunately, I'm not here with Ziga today, but I'll get to her in the evening. By the way, we also have an office in Lviv. Jokingly, I would say that our office is human-friendly, not bad-friendly because that's our the first-class citizen there, <laughs> uh, and they allow some of us humans to to go there. <laughs> so it is fun. It is fun and uh, absurd enough, and uh, I love humor. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dimko, for sharing all of that with us. It's incredibly fascinating and moving to hear about your year and what you've been doing and the kind of challenges and issues that you've been facing. So thank you so much for your time. Francis Dernley, can I turn to you just for some final updates before we finish? Well, thank you, David, and thank you, Dimko, for your insights. I'll be brief, but there's a lot happening in the diplomatic space today. 
One being that I think would be easy to miss, but actually really matters, being the visit by Secretary of State for the US, Antony Blinken, to Uzbekistan and several other Central Asian states. He's meeting foreign ministers from all five former Soviet republics of Central Asia on his first trip to the region. This matters because, of course, as James Kilner has spoken about on the podcast many times, Russian influence in those former republics has really waned as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. Many of them have been very angry by what they have seen happen to Ukraine for the fear, of course, that a similar thing could happen to them in the future. And so this is America trying to offer support to these countries. And in that vein, uh, Anthony Blinken has said that uh, U.S. support for Kazakhstan's independence in particular uh, is uh, very, very important to them. They said they strongly support its sovereignty, its independence and its territorial integrity. And he went on. Sometimes we just say these words and they actually have no meaning. But of course, at this particular time, they have more resonance than usual. And I imagine there'll be a few more updates that will come out of that tomorrow, because, as I say, I think it's quite geopolitically interesting, even though if it pales in significance, some of the other things that have been going on today. And just the other update I wanted to talk about is that today marks one year on from the fallout, the conclusion of Olaf Scholz uh, announcement that this was a Zeitenwender, this being a historical turning point for German foreign and defence policy. And you'll recall that he promised this radical rethink of Germany's relations with Russia, with its dependence on Russia. And also he provide he provided assurance that there would be a huge amount of investment in the Bundeswehr, in the, in the German armed forces. And I just wanted to end really by thinking about how much has changed, how much of that promise has been fulfilled. And to be fair to Germany, of course, there has been some very significant developments in the energy space. At the, at the end of 2022, the share of Russian natural import imports of gas has dropped to 22% from 52% a year earlier. Norway has overtaken Russia as the main supplier. They've also struck a new deal with Qatar as well, which is helping to mean that they are actually almost completely cut off from dependence. And I use that word. It's not as if they're not still buying some, but the dependence on Russia. So in that space, they have made big strides forward. But in terms of other promises by Olaf Scholz, I think things have been perhaps a little more or a little less, should I say, uh, encouraging from the perspective of the Ukrainians and other allies within uh, this broader alliance, whether that be Britain or, or America. Because I think Germany still, of course, is making overtures towards uh, there needing to be a peace that ensured Russia was not completely diplomatically isolated, that, of course, any conclusion to this war needs to find one that it can be uh, long-lasting. They talk about how it may not be necessarily a military solution, that is something that needs a diplomatic conclusion. That, I think, is perhaps a sign that things have not transformed in terms of German foreign policy and mentality as much as some people expected. But the other big one, of course, is defence spending. And what's been quite interesting, there's been some analysis on this in the last 48 hours or so that said that there of this additional 100 billion euros promised to defence, a lot of that is being eaten up by inflation. A lot of it is being consumed by rising interest rates and VAT and arguably will not be sufficient for a a comprehensive reform of the Bundeswehr. So not necessarily that profound transformation that many were expecting off the back of what felt a year ago as a really significant moment. But of course, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by that. 
For one, it takes a lot to transform the culture of a country overnight. But perhaps more prosaic than that is the fact that we are still dealing with a German elite, German political class, of course, that have been elected in prior to the invasion. And so we won't be able to see that transformation within German society, if there has been one, until the next round of, of elections, which is still some years away. So... A cautious picture, I think, is is perhaps the best one to paint around Germany at the moment from the perspective of perhaps the Ukrainian war aims and, and, and many of their allies. But nonetheless, I don't want to make it sound as if nothing has changed because on that energy point, the, the, something has really significant has happened here, something profound and something, I think, in the long term to be celebrated. But I'll draw, draw an end there, David. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.